Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Today is the third in a series of podcasts that I recorded at CNU 22 in Buffalo. This one's with my good friend, John Anderson, and I think you'll like it. I really wanted to chat with John because there's this whole group of people out there that I think are ready to get out and actually build strong towns and have some preconceived notions about what that means and, and maybe some hangups. And John just makes it so simple. I, I wanted you all to hear it. Last week was our membership drive. Uh, appreciate everybody who went to the website and signed up to become a member. If you haven't done that, please do so. We really need your support to help with this podcast, to help with the blog, and, and help with everything that we do. That's at strongtowns.org. Sign up to be a member today. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. I'm still at CNU in Buffalo. And I've got with me one of my favorite new urbanists, John Anderson. John, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Oh, I love the Strong Towns Podcast. <laughs> do you seriously? Do you, yes. do you listen to the Strong I listen. Do you really? Yeah. I'm really honored. I got to tell you, you know, the notice comes up. I get an email or Yeah, yeah, you get whatever, a little notice. That says, you hey, gotta, it's coming. You know. and, and then you smile because of that? Well, I not only smile, I it's one of the finest opportunities to procrastinate getting started with my day. You know, <laughs> well, get I, into the office, put the podcast on. If I can know, add to your procrastination, I'm happy with that. I want to talk about development with you. Okay. But before we get too far into that, you have some Minnesota roots oh, yeah. in you as well. Why don't you just go through those to establish your lack of credibility? Well, you know... It kind of lowers the bar, so you know people are surprised and right. satisfied when you can perform properly. <laughs> My parents moved us to Duluth, and when I was ten, so I basically went to school, grew up there. Okay, okay. We lived on the Central Hillside. Yeah, and I remember taking that walk with the icy wind blowing up the back of your, your yep. coat. Yeah, yeah. Catching carp down on down on the pier. I've got a good friend that lives in Duluth. And when it's five below where we're at, it's 10 below where he's at. When we get two inches of snow, he gets six inches. So, yeah, Duluth is an interesting place to be. Well, you know, and you get an extra month of winter. So, right. you know, if you're into Bonus, that, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. growing up, you think that's normal. We would go to the tropics to Minneapolis to preview spring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I went from there to New York. I was working on the docks, and we had a strike yeah. over containerized cargo. And the Port Authority put up a crane, and they were gonna, there was going to be containerized cargo in Duluth. Right. So my union, we struck. Shut down the port. Wow. Yeah. And it took them a year and a half to figure out the container ships couldn't fit through the locks at Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. So never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and they took the crane down and sold it to somebody at some point. So during the strike, a buddy of mine said he could get me in the electrical union in New York. So okay. went out to New York and was there for 13 years. The, uh, and eventually found my way back to Minnesota to work for the developer at Mall of America and yeah. stuck around in St. Paul for 10 years. Yeah. And then I went to California because they have like sunshine. I've like, heard that. In February. Yeah. When normal it's, people are all depressed. Right. I've heard that. It's such an odd concept. Well, yeah. You get off the plane and, you know, within a, four hours you're happy. You did say that to me. You said it actually makes you happy in the winter. Yeah, well, and you know, some people. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of an upbeat guy in February. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy the real cold. I enjoy the snow. 
what I don't enjoy is the spring transition. I like the fall transition. You don't nicely. like the start of road construction? Oh, it's so exciting. I hate it when the winter starts. And this is a family podcast, so I won't use a, a real expletive. But when the winter starts messing with you, it's like, okay, spring. Here's 50 degrees. So we're all out in shorts and sandals and, you know, short sleeve shirts. Like, it's beautiful out. The next day, five below and six inches of snow. And, you know, you will have days where you wake up and it's 10 degrees. And in the middle of the day, it'll be 80. And then that night, it'll be back down to 10 degrees again. And you're like, why are you messing with me? Why are you well, messing with but me? But when it finally breaks. Yeah. Minnesotans are outdoors until the first blizzard in October. Right. I think there's this, there's a brain chemistry thing. There's such euphoria that you forget what you've been through. You're so glad to be alive yeah. and everything else. And then one day in October, you're walking across the street and the wind comes up behind you and you face palm. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> it's I'm here. here. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to do this. Yeah. You know, so. there's, a, there's a certain part of the fall experience You'll get a kick out of this, Jim. I find myself going to Taco John's and like eating like fatty foods. Oh, with and the tots. You can get the tots at Taco John's. The tot, yeah, the potato oles. Yeah. It's like the squirrel preparing for winter. I, I start like burrowing. Like, you know, I get the snowblower, the oil changed in it. And get it all like ready to go. Chuck, you are such a Boy Scout. That <laughs> feeling of getting prepared, that's, yeah. that's a basic suicidal urge. Is it really? Yes, you're looking to bury yourself and die. So at some point, I'll just go too far with it, as you're saying? Like some year, like, you know, yeah. advanced age, you'll, I'll be just be like, the, You'll be in the garage with a shotgun in your mouth, like yeah. most guys. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, well, I mean, somebody who's listening from, like, Kansas won't know that right. if two Minnesotans meet on the street, you do the ritual handshake and talk about the weather, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, and not face each other, <laughs> you know, <laughs> look out in the distance. Um, I have to tell you, the greatest compliment that I ever received as a Minnesotan and I'm going to share this with you because you'll think it's a compliment too. When I was in the army, we were all lined up and you know how they'll like yell out, like I need five volunteers, you know, and you never raise your hand because you don't want to be that person. Right. They come out and they say, who's here from Minnesota? You know, and I know everybody there who's from Minnesota. There was like five of us. We all raise our hand. He's like, come with me. And we went in, they wanted us to do some typing. Like literally, like they wanted someone who had who had been to a good public school, yeah, who had actually like knew how to construct a sentence and you know type something without totally messing it up. And I wasn't even mad at that point. I mean, we had one guy who couldn't do it, but the other four of us were like, "Yeah, like we can do this." Yeah, the curse and of the adequate education. <laughs> so to me, that was like you know a Minnesota moment. You well, you get picked out because of that. Well, like yeah, okay. The, the, when you go on the road, do you have people in San Diego say, oh, do the accent? The, yeah. <laughs> They're like, you don't even talk like you're from Minnesota. Oh, yeah, and, but get me started. Yeah, yeah. Get, let's get going, eh? Yeah. You know? I uh, go up and speak in Canada every now and then. And when I go up there, it's like, yeah, this is a I Tim just... Hortons down the street here in Buffalo. I saw that. I actually was there once. When I go north, I lose all pretense of trying to not speak like a Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like you're liberated to just talk however you want. Yeah. yeah it's you know, fun. I don't know about Brainerd, but in, in Duluth, you know, we're up there by the range. Right. Uh, you are. But it, yeah. you know, by the range, uh -huh. we had no idea that we'd ever be like the Paris of the Midwest, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. you know, yeah. we, we pretty much let loose all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Here's why I want to talk to you about development. I wanted to for a long time. There are so many 
young people out there today with so much capacity to do great things, small great things, right? Like all the houses that need to be rehabbed, all the buildings that need to be put back to better use. And I think a lot of times they're afraid to become a developer because it seems like some mystical, magical, you've got to have a $20 million kind of thing. And you literally are a bootstrap guy. Well, most developers are bootstrap guys unless they were like, you know, their dad was a developer and there's a family firm up and running already. Right. But even in that case, their dad was a bootstrap guy. Well, I want to motivate all these people out there with no job, but want to do this to get out there and just do it. So tell us how you got started. Well, before I do that, those young people that are out there, you know, a number of them have like the first prerequisite that other people have a hard time getting their mind around, you know, crushing student loan debt. Right. Okay. Right. So once you are already in hock for a hundred thousand dollars yeah, and you have no idea how you're going to pay it back. Yeah. If you can kind of come to peace with that, right. you can be okay with the idea that you're going to. What's another hundred thousand, right? Yeah, what's another million, you know? <laughs> are they going to take my to sell twice? Right. You know, what, are they, right. what are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? Um, the, well, <laughs> the way I got started was I, I started in the construction trades as an electrician, and I fell off a scaffold pulling wire and chatted my shoulder. And yeah, so as part of rehab, I ended up drafting in an architect's office before CAD and all that. Sure. And if you're doing electrical design and drafting in an architect's office, you're you're basically correcting. You're doing it. You're doing everyone else's red lines. Right. The whole rest of the crew. I didn't go into college. I, I sort of escaped high school on a technicality. You know, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, this is attrition. They had to let you out. Yeah, yeah. they had to let me out. But the uh, so I wasn't you know an architect. And because I came from kind of those people in the field, right. it was time to have a meeting about change orders or go measure some disgusting building. It was like, well, send John. Yeah. He yeah. loves those guys. Right. So I was back and forth the architect's office and started doing more and more of that. Went from there to working for contractors and for developers and owners. And you kind of advance through the farm team system of like, you know, progressively larger and larger projects. Right. At one point, I got kind of called up from the miners to go for work at at Mall of America for Mel Simon. And that gig was actually, you know, four or five of the black sheep mavericks inside the company. Yeah. And the rest of us, they brought up from the miners because we didn't know any better. Okay. So you get to the end of that, you know, four years of building the big mall. And you realize that in the majors, they actually do a lot of things not quite as well as you do when you have to be more resourceful in the miners. Right. Play three or four positions kind of thing. Right. So I decided that, you know, after four years, I was living on the west side of St. Paul, and I would drive through from my 1913 Sears Roebuck house, I'd drive through every successive layer of American development until I got to four million square feet of retail extravaganza at the edge of the world. Yeah. At the intersection of two freeways. And then reverse the process at night after having spent the day with lovely retail people. There are a lot of things that don't get better when they get bigger. Right. You know, there's a big scale problem and something of like that magnitude. At the same time, I was working in my neighborhood with a nonprofit and we're doing renovations and stuff. So I wanted to do smaller scale things really, really on purpose. And I got hooked up with Michael Lander in Minneapolis and we started a planning firm and 
figured out that if I wanted sunshine, I could move to a place where they had it. Yeah. And moved to, to Chico when I was, I've been there for the last 15 years. Yeah. But the development side of it, I was kind of the design guy, planning and entitlement guy inside of a development shop where we were also doing home building and sales and warranty work and the like. And working also on infill projects in and around Chico. And we still had the planning practice, so we'd bounce around, you know, around the country and work in charrettes and things. But after the recent unpleasantness yeah. in 2008, we were presented with a new opportunity to think about reimagining our business. <laughs> so I hear a number of firms were presented with that opportunity yes. around the same time frame. Yes, it was, it, I think we're going to call that the era of great opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a really good way yes. to put it. The, um, either that or the, the era of considering, well, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And right. I think right. that just happened. Yeah. They take your church cell twice. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> so... David and I hung out a shingle and David uh, Kim, David Kim. Yep. Anyone who's actually familiar with Anderson Kim knows that Anderson first, because it's just alphabetical. It's alphabetical. Yeah. Sure. That's, that was always my assumption. The way I looked at it, cause I'm a speed reader and for a long time I was like, Anders Sorkum. Oh. Like, you know, like I was trying to, I'm not calling like, that guy. Yeah. No, no. And I'm like, who is this pretentious bastard? <laughs> Well, yeah, but, well, you had yeah. that right, but the, uh, uh, no, and, and most folks that know the firm or knew David when he was working for Mullen Polizoides on all those great courtyard housing projects, you know, they recognize where we have some really strong design talent and it's mostly concentrated in David Kim. Sure. Sure. And some have observed that I'm, it's good that I'm there because I'm, I'm spectacular eye candy. So. Well, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. But the, you got to have a great front man. Like. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, so we come off of the recession, you know, the big project I've been working on for eight years. I'm deluded out of it. I'm not, you know, I'm not yeah. having to do with it. This is the one in Chico that, yeah. that you gave me the tour of. Just gorgeous place. Oh, no. This was the 200 acres oh, this across is the, the road. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. The, no, we just finished the last uh, apartments at Domel. The oh, 20 okay. acres. That's now done. Yeah. Um, you know, that took us long enough to be able to cultivate our own NIMBYs. Right. Right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so you, you built the house, moved them in, and then they... Yeah. yeah. And then they objected to the apartments That's we wanted pe- to build. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. The great circle of life. But... We were looking around trying to figure out at a time when there was no financing available for anything, what would we do? How would you keep building? If you found a local partner with cash that wasn't going to make any money in the stock market or anything else, you know, maybe you could just build a building with cash and refinance it later, you know. So we started looking at very small apartment buildings and things. The idea being that if there was no money, at some point there might be a little bit of money so you could do a little bit of building. Right. The, uh, and I'm too old to learn another trade, so right. let's just scale it way back, you know, fourplex. Yeah. We're looking at the, the basic FHA mortgage, you know, 20% down, four units or less. You can't do any more than 20% non-residential. So we came up with something we call the Form Follows Finance Fourplex, the 4F. Okay. I guess in the military that you're No, right. we'd find a way to make that bastardized, yeah. Yeah, yeah so the 4F... Actually, I wanted to call it Forum Follows the Smoking Crater of what used to be finance. <laughs> but David said that... The, the rickety bridge yeah. of finance. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but David thought that, you know, Forum Follows Finance fourplex was a little more alliterative. So yeah. we went with yeah. that. And we've got a, a stiffer accessible unit requirement in California under sure. the code. So if you're building three or more units, you need to have all the ground floor units be accessible. And if you put them on the second floor because it's a mixed-use building, then now you need an elevator because they consider the second floor the ground floor. Oh, really? Under kind of a technical 
think. Right. That's California. No, that's speech. actually Fair Housing Act. They just oh, made really? it a little bit tougher to be able to codify it and have you be able to rely on a plan check from the building department. Oh, nice. Because otherwise, Fair Housing Act, you, you build something and you wait till someone sues you to figure out if you complied with protecting people's civil rights. Right, right. If you build a two-story building, you tell me you have to have an elevator because the second floor is considered the first floor in an ambiguous way? No, they, they have a... In the Fair Housing Act, yeah. which is, again, civil rights legislation, totally. not, a, not a building code. Right, right. It talks about how that all of the residential units on the ground floor, and then ground yeah. floor is sort of a term of art. Right. All the residential units on the ground floor need to be accessible slash adaptable. Yeah, yeah. And then, Makes so sense. if you make an economic decision to put a lawyer's office or a coffee shop on the ground floor of your two-story building, right? and now the residential units are on the second floor, right? for the purposes of civil rights protection, the second floor is now the, quote, ground floor. The ground floor. And that would mean, unless you're building on a hellacious slope like ah, in Duluth, yeah. you, know, the, so, you, you are going to have to get accessible right. path to travel up to the second floor. Okay, gotcha. So we looked at that. And so said, Duluth well, should be booming, you're saying? Well, Duluth should be booming with less elevators. <laughs> the, uh, the net of that is that to do small buildings, you do at least one unit on the first floor. It might be access off the side or the back to satisfy the all the units on the ground floor requirement. Right. So all the units on the ground floor, all one of them are right. accessible, adaptable. Yeah, yeah, that then, makes sense. And then you can have flexible space for the rest of it. But the, the approach we took with the 4F was that if you're going to build, basically get a mortgage and build this house for yourself, you could do a unit that would be like an owner's unit and then three more, and then you could build a workspace as long as it didn't exceed 20% of the, of the floor area. So the prototype we came up with, it was like 19.5% of the floor area was non-residential. Yeah. So four units plus uh, a workspace you can rent out. Then we ran the numbers on it, and you could build it with regular wood frame construction. And and we sent it out to everybody. You know, say, here, reskin this, try it out, test it. Right, right. And then we picked up a couple of design commissions in Alabama and Arkansas and New Mexico where they wanted to build more incrementally and do just a couple of buildings and then do a few more buildings rather than a big mixed use building or a big mid rise where it's a big capital investment. You don't have anything until you have everything. You know, you can't lease out the first apartment until you finish the 40th apartment. Right. Right. You can always like take something small and aggregate it into something larger. Right. But if you're going to take a, like a full block podium building, there's really not a way to phase that. Yeah. Yeah. You're all in. Yeah. Yeah. So, started looking at the issue of looking around at lots and you know, leftover missing teeth lots in Chico and other places and try to understand where it's going to be the hinge points. or And also, anytime you do development, you always want to know just how many fatal flaws you're planning for, you know, so you could eliminate them. Right. You know? It's amazing how much of construction management is panicking over the fatal flaw that you didn't see, right? Yeah. Yeah. And also, you had the, you had the illusion of precision. You know, right. Where you've got a great computer-generated schedule, and, yeah. and the drawings look amazing because they're all generated with totally uniform line weight right. by a machine. Right. So it must be right because it's three decimal places. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know how many times in doing engineering project management that, you know, you'd get out there and the client would be like, a change order? What's a change order? Like, I thought we paid you to do the plans. Yeah, well, I think that there are many enterprises in life where people really want to believe. Right. Because if they actually confronted how much uncertainty and weird 
was going on. Right, it freak them they out. They would never do anything. Yeah, they, they just would, they would lay in the bed with position. the with a pillow over their head. Yeah. yeah. So we're courageous folks, and we're we're willing to move forward on limited information. Yeah. And when you think about it, you know, at one point we had folks that were builders, mm-hmm. and we developed some professional trades in engineering and architecture, and kind of separated into the design profession and the building trades. Right. And then we we reconnect these two disparate groups which become increasingly culturally different. Right. We reconnect them through the use of symbolic drawings that show what a building might be if we're all on the same page. Right, right. And then sometimes we don't get everything on there and there's a change order or two. Right, right. You know. Yeah. But the kind of the expectation that things are going to be done exactly perfectly at the same time as people are working really hard to be innovative kind of for its own sake. Yeah makes that even harder totally yeah. so we think that the way to develop now is going to be with really predictable reliable basic straight ahead little buildings and that you know if you have a project that needs 40 units you probably should do it in seven or ten buildings not one building right or not one great big you know garden apartment building that's like 180 feet long right you know has yeah. a bunch of breezeways a couple of years ago you showed me something that filled in a lot of gaps in my mind. It was basically you took a block and said, you know, here's an underperforming block. And as a developer, here's how I would approach this. The standard approach for a city is let's, you know, acquire all the properties on this block, condemn them, tear them down, and get someone to come in and build something big. And what your approach was, was, okay, I don't know what's going to work here. So I'm going to try this over here and this over here. And then over time, I'm going to add on and, and put some more units here and scale this thing. And iteratively over time, you had a nicer block than anything that would have been built all at once. There was something really powerful about that approach. It gives you the opportunity to try your best, learn from your mistakes, and then put that learning to work on the next building. Instead of if you build one great big building on a block... After that's done, you have some mistakes you could learn from, but right. you know you're exhausted, and and also you won't have the same team next time. Right. So I think that the to work incrementally and to work in ways that don't really allow you a lot of opportunity for specialization, you you have to do more stuff. You know? Yeah. You're doing reliable building types because you really can't afford to invent a new building. You need to be able to refine the one you built last time. Right. So your architectural fees will be, you know, a little less than last time, but mostly your risk of inventing stuff and improving it on the ground is eliminated. Sure. And designers and planners often have misconceptions about what the barriers for changing what you build are. It's an overly simple view to say, oh, builders that put up the the snout house with the garage out front and, you know, the 17 gables that don't do anything and, you know, they're just low-grade thinkers who are afraid to change. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're doing dumb things fearfully, and we could change that if we could just get their attention. And it's silly that the builder would be not wanting to change things for the want of a $5,000 set of house plans. Right. It's not the $5,000 for the plans. Yeah. It's the, probably the $50,000 with the learning curve with the drywaller and the plumber and everybody else who now can build that snout house in their sleep. Right, right. And so you go from a point of being highly efficient, you know, building the wrong stuff. Right. To building something that might be headed in the right direction but really inefficient. And now you became a former builder because 
your guys knew how to do the old stuff and now you're doing the new stuff and they don't know how they to can't do, do that it. and it's right. expensive. Right. And your margins aren't. And your margins are really small to yeah, begin are. with. Yeah. You know? So I think that the it's a damaging myth to think that developers and builders are making huge piles of money. I want to get back to the, the young guy starting out mm. with the incremental part. But before we do that, I want to give you a chance to delve a little bit deeper into because the way you've described this, and I think there's some people listening right now that are thinking, okay, simplify down, build the same, you know, simple box over and over and over. But I've been to the stuff you've built. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's beautiful. You're not talking about necessarily, you know, building things that have no architectural interest or value. What's the interrelationship there between building kind of things that pop, which your stuff does, and things that are also essentially low risk, incremental and simple to build. Well, if you were going to go into, into the clothing business and clothing fashions change all the time and sometimes they're really wild and right. everything else, but you're going to take your life savings and go into the clothing business. I would recommend that you start with like you sell the little black dress yeah. and the classic blue blazer. Sure. And people get to know you that, that, yeah, I can go to Chuck's Clothery and get the little black dress or the classic blue blazer. Right. And you can look at refining that. It's like maybe maybe a little, you know, crest, a coat of arms or a pocket square or, yeah. you know, a nice engineer's tie with the stripes, you know. And you work at the edges of it. And you might see a lot of variation within a narrow range. Sure. And people kind of adjust for that. You know, they, they don't need to see everything be wild. If you're a big, innovative fellow you, and you want to really lead the fashion industry, you might... Start with a Lady Gaga meat dress? Yeah, or, yeah. you know, that basically menswear has been, you know, moldering and stale for so long that yeah. what we really need is innovation. So if you come to Chuck's Clothery, we're going to show you how to wear your pants on your head. Yeah. <laughs> you just look out through the fly. All it'll right. be awesome. You know? <laughs> and, and we already have the pants, so yeah. no problem. Yeah. You know? And if that fashion doesn't catch on, then, you know... You're done. You're done. Yeah. So there are places like St. Paul where, you know, there's the classic Sears four-square house and there's the classic bungalow, you know, and those houses have been done over and over and over again. They're really recognizable, very comfortable to people. Mm -hmm. So if you can produce that house and pay attention to proportions and kind of and executing things in a consistent way, yeah. you know... Also, if you build a good street, it takes a lot of pressure off the house. Right. You know? Right. So, you know, we're looking for build a little black dress house, build the classic blue blazer house, or the, the classic blue blazer little commercial building. Right. And if you focus on, well, we only have so much budget, we need all the windows to really be well proportioned and vertical. You know, we need... We'll spend a little extra for the, the really good door hardware that you're going you're gonna to touch every day. Yeah. You know? Now, the door in the closet in the third kid's bedroom might right. feel like it was stamped out of an old fresco can, but you, yeah. know, but we, but you put the money where it <laughs> but makes... But your front door, you're going to feel like yeah, rugged. You're yeah. going to use it all the time. Right. You know, the kid's closet door, they're not going to put anything in there anyway. Right. You pile yeah. of clothes. No, it'll be open floor. with toys strewn all yeah. over. I, I'm in that life right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the that <laughs> figuring out where to be strategic about where you spend your money in, in the design, where you spend it on the house... Also, rectangular buildings, you know, with regular openings and yeah. awnings and things like that, it's very comforting to people. Right. You know, people like it. It makes them happy. And if right. they're happy, they'll give you money. Yeah. If they're not happy, they typically won't give you That's money. That's generally how, yeah, I've if seen, not, I've seen that real, happen. If they're really yeah. unhappy, they'll sue you. Right. You know? <laughs> 
So the chance to do things in a regular, recognizable way also gives you a way to explain to the tradespeople that are working on the job the reason why we do windows that are vertically proportioned right. is this. You right. Know? So don't substitute them just because you got a cheaper deal on a horizontally proportioned window. Right, you know? right. It's not like we're some arm-waving design, you know, yeah. types. Yeah. It's like, no, it's about the money. Right, you know? right. And it's about taking care of, you know, the customer that likes that stuff. So the young person we're trying to entice into building now is hearing this saying, okay, I don't have to go bite off a whole block. And I don't have to build the 40-unit place. John's telling me I can just build one nice, simple unit at a time, the black dress, blue blazer approach, and do it well and learn and become better at it. But I still don't have any money. How in the world do I get this off the ground? Well, you do it like every other developer starts out. You start out small. You create some value by investing time and attention and building relationships. You find the parcel preserved in asphalt next to the closed tire store. Yeah. One ownership, not making any money, dandelions are starting to break up the asphalt. Yeah. That would be a nice place to start. Or you start on the corner of a busy street in in what becomes a quiet residential neighborhood. Yeah. You can build the transition building. Sure. I've seen people essentially start as remodelers. You know. Yeah, but then you get really busy remodeling. Okay. And and one of the problems is in today's world, if you are borderline adequate at doing something like remodeling, yeah. you become really busy really quick, really yeah. quickly yeah. because the comparison is someone who's not adequate. Right. You know? So a little word of mouth and now you're busier and you, you know, you got a payroll to meet because you got all these other people that are remodeling. Right. So I think you need to kind of identify what you want to do. And if that's build and develop, figure out a way to make a living to do that, mm-hmm. get your living expenses down. What usually happens the first couple of times out is you're going to bring in a capital partner, someone with good credit and with some cash, and they are going to make most of the money on the building. You're going to get a fee, and you'll have a little bit of a draw against that fee while you're making it happen. So basically, you've created yourself a job with a little upside, and after you do that a few more times, now you can have a job with the larger upside and do that enough times and now you have passive income from the building and maybe you've bought out your partner and now you don't have to work every day but now you're used to creating buildings in great places right but to go back to where do you do the little black dress building you want to look at what street is almost there you know if it's a horrible strode yeah that's not an amenity for the people that are going to rent in your building right you want a nice public space that maybe would become a great public space if it had two, three more buildings. Sure. There's basically a fallow amenity laying out there that just needs to be buffed up a bit. Yeah. And you're not building, you know, the swimming pool that nobody's going to use because the creepy guy from 4B and the Speedo's always down there. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's expensive to build. Yeah. And then you got to insure it and yeah. maintain it. Yeah. And apart from the guy from 4B who's really grateful, right. nobody cares. Exactly. You're not, well, you're not going to get that much of an, a bump out of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. There's minimal upside and yeah. a lot of downside. Yeah. Yep. But if you have a beautiful building that does its job on the street and, yeah. you know, people's used tricells are parked behind it. Yeah. That's... It's going to be way better. Yeah, yeah, and it might be like a dumpster that didn't go in the front yard that goes in the back. Right, right. So the, It is those subtle little things, isn't it? Well, it's those things that in the aggregate, you feel really good when it's done right. Yeah. And if a few of them start to slip in, the transformer's in the front yard, yeah. the trash is up front. And yeah. You can feel it, and it's important where you just kind of 
yes, that's a nice building, but, you know, it's kind of in the wrong place. Right, right. So with that approach to you find an investor to help you with your project. I mean, you don't got to know Daddy Warbucks to do this. No, you, you're looking for, it might be family, typically it's family and friends on the front end. Yeah. Or it's someone that your family and friends introduce you to. Sure. This is Chuck. He's a recovering engineer, and he's going yeah. to build a nice fourplex on the corner. Right. You know? Would you um, want in? This is Jim, the yeah. doctor from my rotary group. I think, yeah. you know, why don't you guys have lunch and talk about it? Yeah. And I think for the folks that don't have the money necessary to get started, it's very intimidating because you're not asking somebody to, like, give you money and you're going to walk around the corner and burn it. Right. You're going to go make a building happen. You're going to make right. something more valuable than the money. Right. You know? Right. And if you have capital you're trying to, wealth that you're trying to preserve or enhance for your family, it's like you're guessing which mutual fund is going to perform well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, so a hard asset, you know, that people understand, a building that people pay rent to live in. Right. Or an office that they pay rent to use as an office. Right. That's a business most people understand. Mm -hmm. You know, is this a good building? Will it fall down? No, it's a good building. Right. You know? Okay. So you find somebody that would like to put their money to work. And in some respects, capital for a small project is like concrete for a small project. You need to figure out what kind of concrete you need, when you need it, how much you need, what you're willing to pay for it. Yeah. And what happens if they bring too much concrete and, you know, uh, you do you still pay to pay waste for it? it? Right, yeah. yeah. So, or plywood. Might right. Be, because there's lots of different types of plywood. Yeah, yeah. So, in some ways, you're looking for a relationship with somebody who's going to provide kind of a commodity product into a situation where you're going to do a value add. Right. You know, so you start off with, well, you know, if you had $200,000, would you put that at risk and we'll go borrow, you know, $800,000 from a bank to get a construction loan. And well, as a recovering engineer, I really don't, I don't have much credit history and the like. So in addition to the $200,000, we're going to need you to personally guarantee the loan on this building until we can get it all built, full of tenants, we can demonstrate that the what it costs to operate the building is stable. And then we replace the construction loan with a, a permanent mortgage, which is, doesn't have to be personally guaranteed. Right. So you create value, and then you create cash flow with the rents. And also you look at the exit. You know, you look at as many ways to get out of the deal and preserve them as possible. You could refinance it. You could sell it. It all or in part, you could sell your portion of the building right. and that someone else could get a new partner. Right. So you look at all those things and you look at how to operate the building efficiently. A small building is hard to do efficiently, so you want to find somebody who's managing multiple ones well. Yeah. Or eventually, it would be good if you had enough in your portfolio that you could find a person to manage them yourself. Sure. But then you've got passive income coming in. You're not actively having to go make a building happen to... To buy groceries, yeah. yeah. Let me ask you, common mistakes, and my guess is that one of them has got to be falling in love with a project and believing in it without the pro forma math penciling out completely. Well, is that that's, yeah, that's a that happens actually at very large scale too. Amen. Yeah, uh, um, Mall of America. Is yeah, that <laughs> yeah. The, yeah? The first mistake a lot of people make is to narrow the number of things you might choose from. It's like, yeah. I'm going to pick one project, one site from a pool of, of one site. Right. That's the one right there. Yeah. You should look at, well, considering what I want to do, a nice building that turns the corner between the busy street and the residential street, you know, in Brainerd, there's seven of those. Yeah. yeah. 
and they belong to six different people. And there's yeah. only three meth labs yeah. among them, right? right. So, yeah. so you start looking at kind of the pros and cons of each, and there'll be trade-offs. None of them will be the ideal project. And, but you'll test them all with kind of the same test. You know, it's like, do I have a shot at a good relationship with the seller? You know, do I have a shot at the zoning entitlements or is it going to be messy? Do, right. You know, is it too far from the concrete plant to get reliable deliveries? You know, right. all these things you start right. to look at. Or is it too big? You know, yeah. The, uh, you look at all those things, you compare them, and you, you make the best choice you can with the information you have at the time. But you also develop that information kind of, we get to a decision point with the same information about all the projects. The problem with only having one project is you spend so much time together, you become best friends, and then you love the project. Right. You know, right. Like that. So right. Now you're in a relationship. You're in a relationship. Yeah. And, and, if, and it, if it starts to become an abusive relationship, you, you kind of get codependent, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, also, you, you're in this relationship, and now you start to look around at other properties and think, well, yeah, but I, I really don't know that much about that other property. Right. Yeah. So my high school sweetheart property over here, yeah. you know, is now the gold standard that I, can, <laughs> I that I have lots of information about. Yeah, you know, I know all the faults and foibles, and I have great confidence in this property's potential. Right. So don't fall in love with a piece of property, and also early on in the process, if you have a napkin sketch of your rectangular building with the beautifully vertically proportioned windows and the nice awnings on the ground floor, mm-hmm. you need a napkin sketch of. What's it going to cost to build? What can I rent it for? What's it going to cost to operate? And how am I going to find the money to pay people to pay attention to it in the meantime? Right. And as your napkin sketch of the building gets better, your napkin sketch of the numbers gets better. Right. You bring it up at the same time. Because you're going to use that... Both those things to explain to people that you know what you're doing and you've identified the risks and you're managing them in, in a competent way. So you should really have a very clear idea about what you're proposing to build on one of one of four possible sites, and that reinforces the reason why they might trust you with their money when you talk to the investor. It is crazy. I see so many people who have land want development as opposed to I'm coming in and looking around at all the options and picking the best one. They'll come in and say, well, I own this land or I acquired this land, and now what can I do on it? That is a unique kind of challenge when you have that, right? Yeah. One of the problems is uh, a common mistake is that people that own land and that's the land that they own, um, they're in a very long and extended relationship. They have a lot of expectations about this land going up and and going to college and becoming a doctor. Right. This is not their their mate. This is their children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while there might be a lot of potential for the child slash land. Yeah. The, the child is five. You know, exactly. We don't know if he's going to be a doctor. Or yeah, not. they might uh, so, wind up a druggie and drop out. And yeah. They might. So you need to be careful about which pre-K program you get them into. Uh-huh. And so the pre-K program for the piece of land is, you know, well, let's talk in a very sober and, and conservative way about what could happen on this land. And a lot of folks think that, well, you know, if we could build the Empire State Building here at Elm Street in Brainerd, yep. this land would Put be really... Put another mega mall in right yeah, there. this yeah. land would be really valuable. Yeah. You know? So even if you only want to build a fourplex, I'm really looking for that Mall of America price. Right. You know, because I've been thinking about it for at least a month. Yeah. And the more I think about that price, the better I like it. Right. <laughs> so, so the... That's another reason why you look at yeah. more than one piece of property because right. you want to be able to disabuse them of the idea that the next Mall of America will be in Brainerd. Right, right. That you're thinking more about a fourplex. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> eight bedrooms, you know, six bathrooms max. Sorry. Right. The mall is much bigger than that. Yeah. You only have an acre. Yeah. You can't fit it there. So being able to look at multiple properties and you use the opportunity to talk about what building could happen there and to be very transparent about the numbers. Mm-hmm. Because almost inevitably, you're going to find that based on what you need to do to build the building and manage that risk, that the price for the land is likely going to be less than what people wanted for it. Right. And another common mistake is, hey, if we're just doing this on paper and we're going to figure it out, I don't actually have to be limited by actual capacity. I could sort of imagine myself into success. Right. But in reality, you can't do what you actually can't do. Right. You know, it's not the same thing as you can't do something that's hard. Right. You can't pay too much for the land and still make money on the building. Right. You know, with the, the existing there, entitlements. There is a else. certain sobering prudence to staying in business doing this a long time. You have to be conservative in nature in terms of your financial approach. You have to be thinking hard about while there are intangibles that are exciting and that people get really passionate talking about and yeah. they're going to create a great place. Yeah. We're going to create a great place doing very boring things over and over again. Yeah. And when you say we're going to create a great place, that's what people hear. And they, they don't stick around for the by doing boring things over and over right. again. You know. We got to wrap up. So I want to ask you one last question. You work on a project like the Mall of America. You know, you work on some of these big projects. And there's a certain level of satisfaction in completing it. But you work on some of the projects that you've done, the smaller scale, the incremental stuff. And there's got to be a certain amount of satisfaction driving by a decade later and seeing it that doesn't come from the other ones. And I'm just wondering, you know, if that's a a motivator for you. If you can build good places and good places that get better over time when other people make their efforts too. Yeah. Not only, you know, I did that or I did it, it turned out well, it makes other people happy. You're basically creating a platform that civilization can continue to grow and evolve on when people repaint their house or add on to it or you know when when they're doing their part that's probably the most satisfying it's like okay i'm not crazy yeah this is a good idea i think that as new urbanists we would like to come up with a kind of a technocratic solution in spite of other people's participation sure but you know you look at the charter it's like well it looks like we're talking about building civilization in a way that would be recognizable to other humans and they would like it yeah. We, you don't need a secret Dakota ring to figure out that you feel comfortable walking down a street with parked cars between you and the moving cars. Right, you know? right. Yeah. So I think that the, when we get things to that level where a good neighborhood or a good street is as obvious as a post-it note, and it's like, well, yeah, I could have thought of that. You know, mm-hmm. yellow paper with glue that doesn't really work. Right. And it, yeah, that could have been me. Yeah, yeah. But if someone were to pitch you that idea, yeah, I, it'll be amazing. Little yeah. pieces of yellow paper with glue that doesn't really work. Yeah. It'll be huge. Yeah, it's like, be, that's, that's a really crazy. crappy idea. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So I think that, the, that good urbanism is like a post-it note. You can see it over and over again, it, you know, you, and you start looking for nuanced ways to, you know, to use that really self-evident thing. When people are, you know, living and working and and playing and eating and drinking in a great city, you know, there's this flywheel effect where not only are you part of something bigger than just you, but you get the benefit of it. You know, you don't have to drive six miles to get a $2 cup of coffee. You could walk down the street and they'll hand it to you for $2. (laughs) So I think that's sort of really sophisticated, hyper-complex thing. Yeah. You know, food and drink, 
close to your house. Mm-hmm. We don't have to actually create Paris. Yeah. We all we need to do is create a noticeably less crappy version of America. Yeah. You know, and people will recognize the spread and they say, "Oh, I like this. It's way less crappy than what I've been doing." Yeah. Yeah. You know, I could probably sell this for more <laughs> when it comes time to sell it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm all about less crappy. Yeah. Yeah. That should be your tagline. Anderson Kim, we're all about less crappy. Yeah. Well, or, you know, we, we tried out uh, Anderson Kim, solving problems by making them bigger every day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks much. You'll have to let me know if you actually, like, stop and listen to this one, too. Oh, my ego is broad and expansive. I'm Good, sure I, I hope have you a do. little place for this. Yeah. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.